Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. On this episode, Understanding Dimensions. One of the things that all Christians believe but rarely think about is the reality of the supernatural dimension. We all believe that it exists, that there is something on the other side of our physical world, but we are conditioned to think and believe that this world is all there is, that this is all that matters. In this very first message of the series, The Cosmic War, Pastor Corey unpacks how our world is not just the four dimensions of length, width, height, and time of our natural world, but the Bible reveals that there are potentially lots of other dimensions that we don't have access to, and that Jesus is the one who holds the keys to them all. This is a fascinating message with supernatural implications. So without further delay, let's turn it over to Pastor Corey for this message, Understanding Dimensions. Guys, we are jumping right in the message today. And, and the reality is, is that I've got a lot to say. I always have a lot to say. But I do have a lot to say today. And um, I, uh, I, I went through my little outline, and I, I, I'd been studying you know, all week and putting stuff together and kind of compiling it. And then I, I laid it out all in, in really kind of what I considered an essential outline like, these are all the essential components. I need everything. And I came in here yesterday, and in the morning, I preached through it. It was an hour and 45 minutes. Well, then I went back, and I was like, I don't have an hour and 45 minutes. You know, man, we have, we have an hour and a 10-minute service, right? There's, and so I cut, and I slashed, and I reorganized, and I put stuff together. And, uh, and then I preached it again, and it was an hour. And... I really believe that what we are going to jump into today is that important that it's worth taking some time to un- engage it. And so we're, I'm just preparing you. The, it was an hour in the first service. Some of you guys came here and I was still yapping, right? You were standing out in the lobby watching, trying to go, what in the world is he talking about? Um, so we're going to jump right into it. We are starting today a message series called The Cosmic War, Okay. And, and I, can, I can guarantee you that at times during this message, your head is going to hurt. It's going to challenge you. It's going to cause you to think differently. And this series is going to cause you to think differently. But the, the little tag of this, the little heart of this series is to help you to begin to see the supernatural reality of the Bible. The supernatural reality of the Bible. Now, I want to start by asking you this question. And this is going to be a question that's going to be important for you to have an answer to throughout this entire series. It's not a question that you can just answer flippantly. It's not a question you can just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, oh yeah, yeah, now, good. I want you to think about this. The question is simply this, how committed are you for the Bible to be the defining authority in your life? How committed are you to allowing the Bible to define reality for you? How authoritative is the Bible's role for you in defining the reality in which you live? Now, a lot of us will just say, oh, yes, we believe the Bible. We, we get it. The, the Bible is, is the word of God. I believe it. I trust it. I, a pastor told me one time, he's like, I even believe the cover on this one and it had his name on it, right? I believe everything in here. 
that's a pretty common thing for us as Christians to say we believe every word in the Bible, and I do. The Bible says that it is divinely inspired. It is authoritative. It is, it is a guide for our rule or for our life, a rule in which we use to define reality. Now, I want you to wrestle with, are you really allowing the Bible to define reality for you? As human beings, at least in our present reality, the Bible is not often the definition of reality. In our culture right now, there is something that defines reality for us, and we call it science. Science defines our reality. If a scientist gets on television and says, this is reality, we often will go, well, that's reality, right? I mean, we are conditioned to trust the science. The, the people that consider that they have the science on their side believe that they can define reality. And so many times there is this tension as believers is because there are many things that we believe that don't fit with science. There are many things that the Bible talks about that are weird, that are crazy, and are virtually impossibly, impossible to believe. Let's just take one reality, one, one little thing, one that we all would probably know. We all just celebrated this a couple of months ago, or uh, weeks ago at Christmas time, that the idea of the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, the idea that a young girl was impregnated supernaturally. Now, if you haven't thought about how crazy and weird and impossible to believe that is, then you haven't really thought much about it. You've just, well, yep, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Why do you believe it? because it does not align with what we know of science. I can almost guarantee that you don't really believe it because if your 13-year-old daughter came to you and said, an angel showed up and told me I was going to be pregnant and now I'm pregnant, but I haven't had any union with a guy, you are either going to call her a liar to her face or you're going to take her to a uh, psychiatric hospital and have her looked at. You're not just going to go, oh, well, that's great. Praise God. Right? You are going to struggle with that because we are conditioned to view this world through a scientific lens, not a biblical lens. How committed are you to seeing the reality in which we live shaped by the Bible? Now, what we're really pressing into is this idea of worldview. We've talked about worldview just a little bit, but This whole series is a worldview series. It is to help you begin to see what the Bible says is a reality around us. It is the truth about our present lives and what exists. A worldview is your beliefs about reality. And those beliefs ultimately shape your response to the world. Let me just say, if you kind of believe that Nobody likes you. Everyone's against you. The, you know, the whole world, you know, you're, you're a victim in everything, right? If, if that's kind of your belief about yourself, 
and you're driving up to church this morning, and every time you get to a stoplight, the light suddenly goes from green to yellow to red, and you get stuck. And then you go to the next one, and all of a sudden it's green, yellow, red, and you get stuck. And every single stoplight, it's green, yellow, red, and you're stuck. That belief that you are, that the whole world is against you, you know what that starts to trigger in your mind? Even the stoplights are against me. There's got to be someone that just sees my car coming, and as soon as they see me, they push that button, and red light comes, and man, they're against me. Everybody's against me. Now, is that, is that connected to reality? No, but trust me, I, I know people who think those kind of things. Because their worldview, their belief about reality, whether it's connected to reality or not, is influencing their response to the world and all the things that we are seeing and our response to it. Let me give you another example. How many of you guys know that your bank account right now has a present reality? It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Okay? One guy says, facts don't care about your feelings. Your belief about that bank account will determine how you respond based on the bank account, so to speak. Does that make sense? If you believe, how many of you guys have had this happen to you? You believe that you've had lots of money in the bank account, and you've just spent, 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 buy, 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 you know, you know, swipe, 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 you know, write the checks, and then all of a sudden you go to your account and realize, um, I was not connected to reality. Anybody ever do this? Is this ever, you know, spent more than you thought you had? I assumed I was good. I thought we had, didn't there, wasn't there a big government dump into my account? Where did that go? I mean, I, right? Our ideas about reality will shape our actions, whether they're connected to reality or not. Okay? So we've got to understand this. So what's the way for us to live with wisdom in this world? It's to have a clearer, more accurate picture of that reality. What's, my, my son is great at this. My son does not make an expense, or he does not buy anything unless he first looks at his bank account to find out how much money he has. Do you know why? Because usually there's like 2 or $3 in there. So he's like, okay, there's $3. I can afford that $1.99. You know, off it goes. He always stays connected to the reality so that he can wisely navigate his present world. As a believer, the more your worldview is shaped by the Bible and the reality, the truth that it reveals about our world, the more you're going to be able to live in this world with wisdom like God calls us to. Are we following? That's why I'm asking you the question, how committed are you to letting the Bible shape your reality? How committed are you to allowing the Bible to define what is real? Now, the Bible presents some pretty wild, crazy and unbelievable things. It does. And if you, if you don't realize that, then you probably haven't been either reading your Bible or you're not thinking about what you're reading when you read the Bible. Because there are some crazy stuff in the Bible. We're going to cover and look at some of that crazy stuff in this series. Now, most of the time when we are presented with crazy stuff in the Bible, stuff that is outside of our comfort zone of reality, 
we do one of three things with it. We either skip it. Right? Okay. Oh man, that that was weird. I think I'm just gonna go to the next chapter. Right? That that's just weird. I, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm not gonna do anything with it. Okay, let's just talk about like when Jesus cast the demon out of the demoniac uh, outside of um, uh, Uriah, there, that place on the other side of the Red Sea. It's not coming to me. So, right, when he cast out those demons and they flew into pigs and they ran down the hill and into the water. Anybody just go, yeah, okay, on to the next chapter. Got to get my reading plan done. Do you ever stop and think about what just happened there? How do you deal with it? So a lot of people just skip it. Okay, I don't like that passage. I'm going to the next passage. Some people will just skim over it. I just keep reading, right? I've got my four chapters to read. I'm going to get through those things. I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep right on going because that was weird. Let's let it go. It's kind of like, right, when you, you're, you're driving down the street and you see someone, you know, doing weird stuff, right? Walking around with no shirt when it's 20 below. You know, you're like, okay, that's weird. But you don't stop and pull over. You kind of just go, that's weird. And we keep right on going. We do that sometimes with the Bible. We see it. We kind of think about it briefly. And then we just move on without thinking it through. Or we try to rationalize it. We try to rationalize it. And when I say we try to rationalize it, we try to interpret it in a way that fits inside of our already established worldview or our understanding that we feel comfortable with. We try to make it fit how we think. Let me give you an example. We are... Let's just take uh, like Isaiah... Isaiah in chapter 6, it says that in the year the king Uzziah died, he saw the Lord seated on his throne. It was high and lifted up, right? And the train of his robe filled the temple. If you read that whole passage, you'll find that Isaiah sees, he he talks into the situation. A seraph flies down with a, a burning coal from the altar and touches his lips. He falls down like there are, all kinds of different physical responses in this. It is clear that this is a supernatural, some kind of outside of our present world or understanding. It's clear that's that. Do you know what most Christians think happened to Isaiah? Where did that happen? It happened in his mind. Why do you think that? Why is that our natural assumption? that Isaiah just had some kind of dream. It was just a dream. It was was a weird dream. You know, it was very vivid. He saw a lot of things, but it just happened up here. Nothing in that, nothing in the description of what Isaiah says, and we're going to come back to this, would suggest that it's a dream. He actually talks about the, the sensations and the feelings and everything being there. It was as if he was in another place. But when we think about that, we go, that doesn't make me feel... That doesn't align with how I view my reality. So I have to interpret that in a way that fits. So what do I do? I shove that into a context, even though it's not biblical, I shove that into a context that makes sense for me. Make sense? 
Do we understand this? We all do this, every single one of us. Weird things are in the Bible. In fact, I have a, a professor, his name is Michael Heiser. He's the, he's the if you ever want to listen to some really deep stuff, he does a podcast called the Naked Bible Podcast. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And a lot of the stuff he tackles there, we're going we're gonna to tackle here during this series. But he, he has this little saying, and he'll say it in class, and he'll, he'll say it you know, on some of his YouTube stuff. He just simply says this, if it's weird, it's important. If it's weird, if, if you come across something weird in the Bible, it's important. And so we're going to tackle some of that important stuff in this series. Because if we're really committed to having the Bible shape our reality, when we come across things that are weird or doesn't fit inside of our the way we think about reality, we have to have a different strategy. We can't just skip over it. We can't just skim through it. And we can't try to make it fit our already pre-established worldview. We instead have to study it. We've got to press into it. We've got to wrestle with it and struggle with it. And then we have to allow it to inform our reality. If we're really committed to the Bible being the definitive uh, agent of reality in our world, then we have to conform to the Scripture, not try to get the Scripture to conform to us. Are we in agreement there? So again, all of this is, is kind of to lay the groundwork for kind of where we're going here. Now, let's jump into understanding dimensions. How many of you guys know if I was going to define a dimension for you, how many of you guys would, would be able to give me an understanding of what dimensions are? If I was to call my son and say, Caleb, will you give me the dimensions of our kitchen table? You know what he would do? He would get out the tape measure. He would go to the table and he would measure the length and the width and the height. Those are dimensions. If you look up the word dimension in the scripture, it says an observable and measurable extent of some kind. That is the definition from the scripture. An observable and measurable extent of some kind. We live in a four-dimensional reality, or so we have been led to think. Those four dimensions are length, width, height, and a fourth dimension that we don't often think about but is absolutely observable and measurable, it's called time. Time. Everything we know exists in those four dimensions. It's called the natural realm. And it's natural because we can see it, observe it, we can measure it, we can define it, we, we see it, and so it's natural. Anything that is outside of those four dimensions is considered to be what? Supernatural. It's outside of the natural. Now, it's important for us to understand dimensions. 
we don't often think about dimensions, but we, we need to understand why dimensions are important and how they help us understand certain things about reality. Now, I need a volunteer. I, uh, I'm all right here. Can I, can I borrow you for a second? It's, it's, all you have to do is hold something. All right, let's give this guy a hand. All right. After the service, go to the coffee shop and tell him Pastor Corey said you can have anything you want. All right. I got I to gotta pay my volunteers. I want you to hold this as wide as you can, okay? As wide as you can. There you go. Now, this, let's just, I want you to give you a scenario. I am the creator, okay? I'm not the creator, by the way. But let's just say in this scenario, I'm the creator, and I want to create a universe for all of my creation, and you guys are all my creation, okay? I'm going to create a one-dimensional universe, and all of you guys are going to be in it, all right? A one-dimensional universe would look like this, right? Just one dimension, Length. That's it. Now, so this is, turn this way just a little bit, okay? So this is our universe and you're all in it, okay? What would you all be? How would you observe one another inside of my one-dimensional universe? I heard somebody say it over here. You'd be a point. Yep, a dot. That's all you would experience. You would just see a point and we'd all be points along the thing. How could we understand or measure one another? What would we have? We really wouldn't have anything other than maybe how far away we are from one another. We could measure our distance. Uh, like let's say I'm here and you're here. We can measure that distance. That's all we could do. I couldn't, even if you were more than just a point, all I would be able to comprehend or understand about you is your adopt. You're a point. And I might be able to understand or, or try to interpret some stuff about my reality based on how far away we are from one another, but that's it. Make sense? We're limited here by our limited dimensions. We only see a point. Make sense? Now, if God was, if I'm the creator, right, and I want to interact, I want to I be with my people, I want to I get into their world, and so I decide I'm going to reach my hand into your reality. I stuck my hand into the reality. What would you guys all observe? You'd be a point. I'd be a point. All you'd be able to observe of me is a point. Now, am I more than a point? I have lots more to offer than just a dot, right? More than just a point somewhere in your reality. But all you can observe and understand of me is what? A point. Now, if you think that's all there is, then are you right or wrong? You're absolutely wrong. Yeah, well, sure, I am a point, but there's so much more that you can't understand about me because why? I'm not, I'm not one of you. I'm outside of your dimension. And when I intersect your dimension, you are limited in understanding me based on the limits of the, dim, uh, the dimension that you're in. Make sense? Good job, bud. Go get a... Go get a Frappuccino or something. Let's just say I'm going to up the game a little bit as creator, right? I, I want to give you more of an experience. I'm going to create a two-dimensional world for you, all right? So I make this two-dimensional world, and I create all of you in it. 
Now the question is, what do you see of each other? How do you understand one another? Now this is a little more complicated. Do you see dots? Yes. Do you see more than dots? Yes, you can. You can actually see lines. Now, instead of everyone being exactly the same, what can be? Some of you can be different. Some of you can be dots. Some of you can be lines. Some of you can be short lines. Some of you can be really long lines. Right? And if you're a really long line, you might feel like you need to lose a little weight, you know, shorten it up, tie it up. Man, I wish I was like that dot over there. No, I'm just kidding. Now imagine now we understand more in the dimensional realm. We understand that, right, there's, there's dots and there's lines. It's all we can understand. Some lines are big, some lines are long. We can understand each other in terms of our proximity somewhere in our universe. We can measure distance between one another. We can actually understand a little bit more information not only proximity, but kind of a shape or, or a definite uh, uniqueness about you. Right? We, can, we can understand some of that. Let's just say then as a creator, I want to interact with your world. And let's just say I'm going to put, take my hand and I'm going to come and touch your world. And let's just say my fingers are just going to just touch, I mean, just brush the realm of your existence. What would you understand God to be? Five what? Dots. Five dots. There would just be five dots. And you could understand like those dots are in certain places. Those certain, those dots might move. We could start to draw conclusions about the nature of God, this entity outside of our dimensions that touches ours. Let's just say as a creator, I push my fingers through your, your existence. Now what, you, what would you see? You'd see lines, right? You'd only be able to understand God as lines. Like there's five lines running over there and some of those lines are bigger. Some of those lines are smaller, right? Are you starting to follow with me why we're often understanding, why this understanding of dimension is important? Because if God who is outside of our dimensions is interacting with us, but we are limited by our dimension, the world in which we live, if we limit God to the natural, then what do we do? We try to put God into a box and make him do something and feel something and be something that maybe he's not. Let's shift here. This is what we would call a cube. It's three-dimensional. Actually, let's just, this is a four-dimensional world because there's time involved. There was time in all the other ones. We just didn't bring it into the equation because, you know, it's, it would complicate things just a little bit. But time just simply means we know when God would put his hand into our existence or not, right? There's a, if, if we didn't have time, everything would just be stagnant. It would just be how it is. And nothing, there would be no ability to measure or to observe because it's all outside of the realm. It just is. There's no time. So time is an important part of our dimension. Now, this has length, width, height. Let's say I created this world for you and you're all in there floating around. Now, all of a sudden, how do you understand each other? You understand a lot more about each other, don't you? You understand shape. You, you understand uniqueness. You understand, you know, not only height, length, but all of the unique variances inside of it. 
And now when I stick my hand into your dimension, you not only begin to observe unique things about me more than you did with just that one added dimension, all of a sudden it becomes more real. If we live as if this is all there is, if everything that exists is in that four-dimensional world, then guess what you're also missing? That there is so much more outside of your tank. If we lived as a fish inside of this little world, and you know, we would swim around just assuming, right, this is all there is? It's everything there is? My, my little four dimensions, and I swim up to the edge of it, and I kind of bounce my nose off the, the glass, and it always kind of seems like every once in a while, it seems like maybe there's something on the other side. Maybe there's something out there. Or maybe every once in a while, some hand comes into my tank and interacts with me, drops food in or, you know, touches or cleans something. You know, every once in a while, there's got to be something more out there than just this. I think that almost everyone lives inside of this. We're in this this four-dimensional world, but there's got to be something on the other side. There's got to be more to that, our existence, than just this natural realm. So here's a big question for you. What if there are other dimensions? What if those dimensions are ones that we are unaware of? What if those dimensions are ones we do not have access to, but they are operating in parallel with our world, interacting with our world, affecting our world, and influencing our present reality. What if it's more than just one? What if it's a multitude of dimensions? I want you to think about that. That's kind of where people start to go, okay. Now we're starting to get into some stuff that starts to make us feel a little uncomfortable. We feel comfortable in our world, our four-dimensional natural reality. But here's what we as Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ have to acknowledge, that the Bible is full of stories that present evidence that there are dimensions beyond our physical world. I want to read to you some passages, and I want us to go through those, and I want to, us to wrestle with the reality of them. The first one I want to take you to is in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15-17. through 17. If you have your Bibles, open up there. It's an interesting passage. The king of Assyria, a little context here so you understand what's happening. The king of Assyria is trying to attack the king of Israel. And he's trying to do these little sneak attacks. He's hiding in places and he's waiting for the king of Israel to come, kind of trying to, trying to get him to come into places and he can spring attack and, and defeat him. But the prophet of God, Elisha, keeps warning the king of Israel, saying, hey, the king of Assyria is out to get you. Uh, he's hiding out here. Go the other way. And so the king of Israel keeps kind of thwarting his attack or he's, he's prepared. And so the king of Assyria is getting frustrated because every time he tries to spring an attack, the man, he doesn't know it's the man of God, but the king of Israel is kind of escaping. 
So frustrated is he that he grabs all of his advisors, he grabs them together and says, look, one of you guys is a snitch. One of you guys is going to the king of Israel and letting him know what we're going to do because there's no other way. And the, and the advisors to the king all say, look, 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 look. It's not us. It's this prophet of God guy named Elisha. He seems to know everything before we even do it. And so, and he's going and telling the king, he's warning the king. And so we got to take care of the prophet of God. If we're going to stop this whole thing, take him out and then we'll have the king. He'll be just fine. So the king of Assyria grabs his armies. They go find where Elisha is and they surround the city. Thousands and thousands of troops and chariots and horses are surrounding now this city. And that's when we get to this portion of the story. It says, the servant of the man of God. So so Elisha has a, a servant, kind of a deputy, a guy who's kind of helping him out along the way. He wakes up early, and when he goes out the next morning, kind of maybe to grab water, get his coffee, hit the Starbucks, whatever he does, he's going to the, 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 the place, right? He looks up, and suddenly... It says that there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. He runs back to Elisha and he says, Oh, sir. I'm not sure if they cleaned that part up just a little bit. What will we do now? What are we going to do? He cried this out to Elijah. What does this young man know? He knows he's about to be put to death. Not only is Elijah going to be killed, Elisha is going to be killed, but I'm going to be killed too. I'm his servant. There's no way out of this. We are surrounded by the Assyrian army. They know what we've done, right? We are trapped. We're in trouble. What are we going to do now? Elisha and the servant, I'm assuming they go out. They look face to face at this army that is everywhere. And Elisha goes, ah, not that big a deal. And I can imagine the servant going, no, 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 no. Whoa. Just look. Are you not aware of the reality around you? The servant assumes he sees reality. We should be afraid. We should be very, very afraid. And Elisha is saying, don't be afraid. Why is Elisha saying, don't be afraid? Because he says, there are more on our side than on theirs. Now for a servant, you hear those things from Elisha. You're like, okay, Elisha, I've been through a lot of crazy stuff with you, but this might be the craziest I think you've ever gotten. You are not seeing reality. And Elisha then goes to God and says these words in verse 17. O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. See what? See another dimension. Something else beyond this box. The servant is stuck inside of it, can see nothing beyond it, but Elijah could see something else. 
And it said, the Lord then opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Anybody seen chariots of fire running around Great Falls? Anybody? This is not the natural. This is not stuff we can measure and scientifically approve. And yet Elisha saw a reality intertangled with our reality that the servant was unaware of until God somehow lifted a veil somehow opened his eyes. I don't know how it worked. We should be asking that question. How does it work? How did it happen? Is it just that there were a bunch of spiritual beings that inserted themselves into our dimensional world? If that was the case, you'd think that the guy would have been able to see it. Were they all like these ghosts that were unseeable, but really there and they're kind of floating around? And I'm just asking questions. These are questions that don't have easy answers. The, the reason why we like to skip over these passages and keep going is because there are things in there that it implies that we can't understand or that we get uncomfortable with. When it says that the Lord opened his eyes, what does that mean? Does it mean that somehow he had like veils pulled off his eyelids and it was only for him? Or was he given an ability to see into a dimension that existed in conjunction with our four dimensions? If you don't think that that dimension had influence over this dimension, then you just need to keep reading in the story. Because ultimately, what happens is that those armies of God, this is kind of a summary of it, but take those armies of the Assyrians captive, lead them out kind of in the wilderness and then drop them off lost. How did they get there? They didn't even know. They're like, they, they get out in the wilderness. They start, they, suddenly their eyes are open and they're like, where are we? What happened to their eyes? Were there, was there a dimensional veil put over them that they couldn't see? And suddenly the reality, they're wandering around, unable to see their, this realm until God pulls another dimensional veil off of them and then suddenly they see reality again. These are hard things to wrestle with. That's why when you see a passage like this, it's not just let's just go on. That's weird. But let's ask some hard questions about it. What does it say about our reality? Because here's what I know. The same four-dimensional world that Elisha and his servants had to navigate, you know, 4,000 years ago is the same four-dimensional world we're navigating today. It's no different. It wasn't just one thing that happened way back then, and it doesn't exist today. Their reality is the same as our reality. The Bible is trying to help us to see the truth about the reality that existed then so that we will understand that it exists now. Are you following me? Did I lose everybody? Anybody following me? Okay. Let's go to another passage. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We, we kind of gave reference to this, but let's just read it here quick. Isaiah, in the year the king Uzziah died, so it kind of gives a context for time, I saw the Lord. 
He was seated on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe was filled the temple. Attending him were six mighty seraphim. Uh, I'm going to pull this up here in in another translation here. Hold on. Okay. Above him stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And what were they doing? They were above the throne of God, and it says they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It goes on to say that the foundations of the thresholds of the temple were shaken by their voices, and the entire place was filled with smoke. Isaiah goes on to say this, Woe is me, for I am a lost and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphims flew down to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What did Isaiah experience? Was it just some dream that happened in his mind? Maybe. Maybe. But maybe not. Right? But maybe not. He is clearly experiencing certain physical things in this realm. He's seeing God. He's able to speak to God. He's able to be heard by God. He interacts with an, uh, you know, this being, this seraphim that grabs a tongue and comes and you know, touches his mouth with a coal. This is a physical encounter. It seems as if somehow Isaiah was able to leave this realm of four-dimensional life and be transported into a dimension of God's throne. And while that is what he experiences when he's in there is he hears these seraphim declaring the holiness of God and praising God for his character. Let's go on. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 56. This is the testimony in, in uh, Acts chapter 7, the testimony of Stephen giving an attempt, uh, a uh, defense of the gospel. He is standing in front of a bunch of religious leaders. They're angry. They're ready to stone him. And he basically gives a long message. And uh, he gives the message. They get infuriated. They're about ready to stone him. And it says right before they stone him, he looks up into heaven and he sees the heavens opened up. In fact, here's what he declares when it happens. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened up. Now, what does that mean? When Stephen is standing there, he looks up, where up or, you know, wherever, but somewhere he looks and something opens. Does that make anybody kind of weirded out? Something opens. 
How many of you guys like the Avenger movies? Anybody? You seen the Avenger movies? You seen the, you know, Doctor Strange? Like, what does Doctor Strange have the ability to do? He takes out this little, you know, golden lasso thing and he spins it around. And when he spins it around, it opens up a portal into another reality. Okay? Not saying that Doctor Strange was up there whipping around and going, you know, hey, see, there's Jesus and God. Okay. What I am saying is that whole idea is maybe more biblical than we like to think. Somehow, the dimension that separates our reality and the kingdom of heaven or the throne room of heaven was opened up and Stephen was able to see from our dimension through it and see Jesus standing next to his father on the throne. How does that work? What did it look like? Was it like a door that opens? Was it like a circle that opens? Was it like, you know, you know, we got the curtains back here, like the curtains are separating. There's other stuff back there, right? Behind the curtains, there's another reality. It's the Holy of Holies back there, just so you know. There's like stands and mic stands and, you know, tables and stuff. But if we pulled that back, right, you'd see into that realm. Could it be that there was like a curtain pulled back or something for Stephen? Do you know in Revelation where it uses the words at some point, the sky is going to be rolled back like a scroll? What does that mean? Is that God rolling back some veil of dimensional separation? I'm just throwing this out for you to think about. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's kind of in this realm where he's trying to defend himself and he's kind of bragging a bit. And, but he doesn't want to really brag and he's, he's talking about how foolish it is to do this. But then, So he, he tries to tell a personal story kind of about himself, but he actually pulls himself out of it. He talks about this experience in the third person. Almost everybody believes this is Paul talking about something that actually happened to himself. But he says this, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I don't know, God knows, such a man was caught up, the word there, harpazo, it means to be seized with force. So to be grabbed, and he was caught up into the third heaven. Okay, into a third dimension or another realm somewhere. He goes on to talk about this. He says, and I know of such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows. Now remember, Paul is talking about this. He's like, I don't know how it happened. Did did I just kind of leave apart from the body? Did I separate my physical body stayed here and my spiritual kind of being just went? Or did I all the way go? Did I, did I disappear all the the whole body and everything, I'm there. I don't know. God understands this. I don't. That experience was maybe beyond my ability to understand in this dimensional world. God knows, but he says, I was caught up into paradise. Now the word paradise there should trigger some things for us. Where was Paul caught up into? The word paradise is used throughout the scripture as a reference to God's home. 
where we're ultimately going to be, the future destination for humanity, those who follow after Jesus Christ. It's heaven. He was caught up into paradise. Jesus uses the same word when he's talking with, his, uh, with the thief on the cross. Remember, he's being crucified, uh, and the criminal on the cross is over there, and he says, hey, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, which is totally a dimensional talk right here, Jesus is about ready to move into another dimension, your kingdom realm. When you go there, remember me. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me where? In paradise, in heaven. Paradisios, this is that Greek word, paradise. It carries with it a connection then back to Eden. Eden is God's paradise. It is where man was created to be in relationship with God from the very beginning. Paul was caught up into the Garden of Eden. All right? A lot of people will ask me, well, where's the, where's the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden has never left. It's still there. It's always been there. It's in a realm of dimension we do not have access to any longer. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Then we're going to close. Paul says, I was caught up and taken into heaven, paradise, the Garden of Eden, God's throne. I want to read one more passage. Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, or uh, verses 1 through 6. This is interesting. It says, after these things. So Jesus has just given John a message to the churches. Okay, Jesus revealed himself, given him a message to the churches. This is the first three chapters of Revelation. And then in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, still there, directs John in a certain way. Listen to what happens. He said, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. What would we call this? A door open to heaven. A portal, a gateway, somebody said. This is a door, an access way from this reality into that one. It opens somehow, right? Just think, we understand the idea of doors. There's some doors right over there. You, You crossed over through the door from the dimension of the commons area to get into the auditorium. And at some point, you're going to cross from this dimension into that dimension. And there's other doors you could go through that lead to other dimensions of our church. Is this starting to make sense to you? As John was there, he looked and behold, a porthole, a a door opened, an access way opened into heaven. And Jesus says, come up here. Right? Behold, He said, and the first voice, that's Jesus, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things. If you really, really want to make your head hurt, just know that when he goes through that portal, it says he was instantly in the spirit, but what was he instantly in? He was in the future. Right? He saw things that haven't even happened yet. This was 2,000 years ago, and he went through some portal that took him to times ahead of us. And then 
Well, he saw it, and then he came back and wrote about it. This is gonna, I told you, it's going to make your head hurt a little bit. So let me throw out something here. Is it just another dimension, or are there more dimensions? Well, I think there are plenty of dimensions beyond our four. Paul says an interesting thing in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's not in this tank. It's beyond this. And he said, it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not, if it was just one realm out there, right? It it would make sense for him to say that heavenly realms. He'd just say heavenly realm. We're against these powers in the heavenly realm. Paul suggests or implies here that there are multiple realms out there that we do not have access to. Now, we want to tie this together with some modern science. There's this whole thing called super string theory. Super string theory, according to kind of mathematics and science and a lot of, you know, uh, quantum physics and experiments, they are suggesting that there is Super string theory suggests that there are up to 10 universes or kind of dimensions that are all kind of interwoven together, four of which we can measure and experience and six of which we, we don't have access to, but we, we suspect they exist. This is science right now. You, you go and investigate uh, super string theory and some of the stuff they're evaluating there in quantum Uh, entanglement is a fascinating deal. And I wish we could get into it, but we can't. But here's the question. If science would suggest there's other dimensions, the Bible says there's clearly other dimensions. Why do we not have access to those dimensions? And here's a question that I want you to wrestle with. Could the banishment of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden could that actually have been a dimensional banishment? Think about it for a moment. Could the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden actually have been a dimensional banishment? I'm not saying it is. I'm asking you to sort this out on your own. But here's a few things to think about. Number one, what do we know about Adam and Eve before the fall or before God's banishment, before his judgment on them? Well, we know that Adam and Eve lived in the garden of God. They lived in what we would understand as paradise. They lived and had access to the throne of God. God created them to live in that realm. They were in God's home. Number two, we know that they could see God. They could interact with God. And they could converse with God. They could talk to him. Not only that, but we also know that they could see other supernatural beings. And they could converse with those supernatural beings as well. How do we know this? Because of the whole conversation with the serpent. Now, some people want to naturalize the serpent. In fact, uh, we... If you want to, you kind of make some connections here. 
In most children's Bibles, or when you see a picture of the temptation, what do you see? You see Adam and Eve standing behind some bushes because they're naked, right? You see a tree with what looks like apples hanging from it. And inside the tree hanging out is a snake, or as we would understand snake, you know, just a serpent. In my, in my kids' Bibles, you know, anytime that there was an S word, you know, it kind of put a couple extra S's on there. Like, did God really say, you know, it's like we're making it like a snake would say it, right? Because in our minds, we connect that with something that we would understand in the natural. Let me throw this little thought into your mind. In Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah looks at the throne of God, if you put that up there, Isaiah chapter six, verse one, he looks at the, 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 the throne of God, the God is seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. In verse two, it describes these beings. And it says, attending him were mighty seraphim. Now here's where knowing Hebrew is helpful just a little bit. The Hebrew word for snake is seraph. In Hebrew, if you have multiple seraphs, you have seraphim. What Isaiah is describing here is basically flying serpents, like dragons, snakes. It is a, uh, the, the word can mean fiery serpent or a burning one. Many associate that, that, that framework as if, you know, like if a snake bites you, it creates a burning sensation or it's a, like my leg's on fire, right? So the fiery serpent or burning one. There's some other ways that you can see this, but I'm just saying, could it be that one of these seraphs, not one of these, but earlier on, there was a seraph one of these, these beings that was to kind of bring worship and protect the throne of God and like these are throne room guardians. Could one of these have been a rebellious one who decided I'm going to leave my post and I'm going to go cause God's prized creation to stumble and fall and I'm going to lead a rebellion away from Yahweh. That serpent Adam and Eve could talk to could see they interacted with him. And that serpent was in the supernatural, was not in the natural, right? There was, there was no boundary that we can tell early in the garden. But what happens? They take of the fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and that fruit does what? It causes them now to have been disloyal to God, to Yahweh, when God finds out about it, he brings judgment upon them. He, he curses the serpent, he curses the woman, and he curses the man. And he removes them from Eden. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3.22. In Genesis 3.22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now this 
This is, there's so much here, guys, and I'm, I'm trying to go as fast as I can. But here's something you want to understand. What does it mean, this is the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? If Adam and Eve would have stayed faithful, they only would have known what? Good. Faithfulness. They would have remained faithful to Yahweh. When they chose to disobey Yahweh, they took of the fruit. What did they suddenly become aware of? Rebellion. Evil. Now, Adam and Eve, no longer are they just aware of good. Now they're aware of evil. And now there's only one remedy for them. It is they have to die. Now there's a reason why death has to happen. Okay, now I know we're wading into some really deep theological arenas right here. But ultimately death is the ultimate test of our allegiance or our faithlessness whether we have chosen to align ourselves in faithfulness to Yahweh, God, or we've chosen the evil path. Does that make sense? Where is that bore out? It's bore out through death. It's bore out through death. If we don't die, what? We are stuck in this four-dimensional reality forever. There will be no escape for us, and there is no way for us to cross over into the other realms. There's no way. We must die. God knows this. That's why he's like, I've got to cut off access to the tree of life, because if they get to it, they'll never get out of it. They have to now die. It ultimately is now the test of our faithfulness or our faithlessness, our good or our evil. Now, before you think it all leans then on our goodness or our ability to be good enough, just know that we can't be good enough. But this is the very reason why Jesus Christ then had to die. Jesus came as a pure, sinless, spotless human. And he was the first person to ever die, go through that portal of death, and then walk back in. He was the only one then who had the power and the authority to cross the dimensional boundaries that suddenly became a limit for us. God says, look, they have to be separated from this paradise. And so what does it say? It says that God cast them out of Eden in verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the garden, from paradise. He banished him, removed him from that dimension. And then he sets, God sets up, uh, cherubim and a, and a flaming sword to guard the access to the tree of life. Jesus Christ became the doorway for us to make it to heaven. We are all going to go through death. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die, 
After this comes judgment. Well, what is the judgment? It's the judgment of our faithfulness, who we've trusted, who we've put our faith and trust in. Have we been faithful and loyal to that commitment? Have we lived it out? In John chapter 10, verse 1 through 10, it says this. After he drove, or or actually, that was Genesis. It says, very, very, I I tell you, Pharisees, this is Jesus speaking. He says, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate or by the door, but climbs in by some other way, he's a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate, remember this is, this is portal language here. The door is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper, now this is kind of interesting. Who would be the gatekeeper? This is like the, the person who controls all of the dimensions That would be Yahweh, the one who rules over it all, right? The gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd. And the sheep listen to his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. What is Jesus saying he is doing? He's saying, I am the door. I am the one, the the porthole in which the sheep can access the next realm, the new dimension. It's through me. I call your name and I lead you out. I am the one through which all of this happens. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. When we get to heaven, we're not going to stop following Jesus. He's going to keep leading us and we're going to follow him because he's our Lord, right? He's our shepherd. And he goes on to say, but they will never follow another. They will never follow another, a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used that figure of speech because the Pharisees and and the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. But I want you to listen really closely to verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said again, Truly, I tell you, I am the gate. I am the door for the sheep. Jesus couldn't be any more clear. What is the pathway into that next reality? What is our access point from this four-dimensional world into the dimension of paradise and beyond? How do we get there? There's only one way. It is through the door of Jesus Christ. It is through him. That's why in John chapter 14, verse six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father. No one gets into the realm of God's home, into paradise, into the throne. No one gets there except through me. Just a few verses before, when Jesus said that to his disciples, he was trying to encourage them because he was telling them, I'm leaving you. And they were all sad and they were struggling with this. And Jesus said this in verse three. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, like I'm going to, I'm going to paradise and I'm going to prepare a place for you is what he says. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come back. 
and I will receive you or take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus says, I'm going to paradise. You're staying in this realm. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is leaving this realm. He's going out into some paradise realm. But Jesus says, I am coming back for you. The word there, where that, that verb where it says, I will come back, is kind of poorly translated to a certain extent. It's an actually, it actually is a, a valid, like a present verb. Like I'm, I'm presently doing this. It is a future as well as a present reality. Let me see if I can explain it to you. If, if I'm downstairs and my wife, I'm, I'm in the middle of something and my wife calls to me and says, Corey, dinner's ready. And I yell, I'm coming. Am I actually coming? No, I'm still working, but I'm expressing that I am coming. Like that's my intention and I will be coming soon. Right? Now, what if I'm actually on the way up the stairs and she says, honey, come for dinner. And I say, I'm coming. Does that mean that I'm still sitting there? No, I'm actually in the process of doing it. I'm actively coming, but am I there yet? No. What Jesus says here to his disciples is, I'm going to paradise. I'm going to come back for you. I'm coming. It's present. And that means that when it comes to the point of death where you're going to cross over from this dimensional experience, guess who's going to be there waiting for you? The door. The door will be there. He will be there and he will be the one who brings you through death into paradise. That's why Jesus could say, today you will be with me in paradise. Not sometime down the road. I'm going to meet you on the other side of death. I'll be right there. And I will take you through the portal because I have the keys. Listen to this final verse. Revelation chapter one, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to all of us. He says, I am the living one. I was dead. Now, hopefully you understand then why that's so significant, right? If it wasn't significant, Jesus wouldn't say it. It's significant because he went through the portal of death and he came back and he says, I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. Death has no hold on him. It is not the impenetrable impenetrable barrier that it is for us. And I love what he says. I hold the keys of death and Hades. What are keys for? Open doors. Open doors. I have the keys. I can get in there anytime I want. I got the keys. I have full access to all of your dimensions. That death thing, it ain't going to last very long. In fact, when we get to the end, guess what actually is destroyed? Death itself. Death itself. 
that dimensional barrier is eradicated. It is destroyed. Could it be that that existence that we would naturally just live in, we are stuck behind some, some barrier because of our sin? But you know what? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he is the door into dimensions of reality that we can't even fathom beyond this world. Let's pray. Lord, I ask and pray, Lord, that in all of this, you would help us to just be aware of the reality of the supernatural, the dimensions beyond our world that we have to, in a lot of ways, we just have to take by faith. But Father, we allow your word to define our reality. We know there's more beyond this. We know your realm exists. And we know that our words can pass through dimensions. And that our prayers can resonate in the throne room of God. And we can join with all of creation, declaring your holiness and exalting your name over all the earth. So Father, we thank you and praise you. We lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.